We're going to come to a portion of Scripture in Acts chapter 4. If you have a Bible with you, turn with me to Acts chapter 4, beginning at verse 32, read down through the end of the chapter. I have to tell you in advance that this particular portion of Scripture uh, comes at a break point in the story, uh, the development and rollout of the Church of Acts. It's almost like at the end of verse 31 you have, and they prayed, and the place where they were meeting was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. And then you get this little inside look at what the church was like, how they worked in their chemistry and their ministry to each other. And you don't pick up the story that we end in verse 31 until chapter 5 and verse 12. So if you jump down to 5.12, you'll see the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people. And all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade and goes on expression. So from 4.32 down to 5.11 is a kind of uh, shift in the picture. It's not so much about the pastor, the uh, apostolic ministry and, and witness and that kind of thing. It's, it's kind of like kind of like a a change of scenery, and you take a look inside the church in terms of how they related to one another. So this morning we're going to look at the heart and soul church. Okay, so uh, begin with me, verse 32. We'll read, then we'll take a look at what made this church tick. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace or great grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them, for from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. That's kind of an interesting window into what the church was doing. As they were growing, you know, they had... 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, it seems like it keeps exponentially mushrooming. But they were, uh, they were a body that were connected with each other, and so they, they exercised good member care uh, one of another. Uh, there's increased persecution that's occurring in Acts chapter 4. We've looked at some of that, but there's this little brief interruption to take a look at the life, what the quality of life was like in the in that early church. And so this morning I want to look at three qualities of a church that I think has authentic heart and soul. Now I realize that NIV translates it heart and mind, but uh, suke is the word. that We get our word psychology from that. That's soul, study of the mind or soul. And uh, so it's heart and soul. So you, you'll probably memorize the sermon title. You hopefully will remember something that was said today other than the sermon title. So let's let's just let's see where we go. So three qualities. Let's take a look at them. First one, verse 32, it was a church that was selfless, selfless, 
I suppose there are a number of ways you can probably carve this portion of Scripture up. But verse 32 kind of rolls it out this way. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Um, remember when Jesus is teaching in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, and there's this line, I'm sure you, you may not wrote you might not remember the address, but you remember the, the, the content. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Okay, so that's the command. And in this particular portion of Scripture, uh, it, that just kind of is a reprise of that command that Jesus gives to his followers, to his disciples. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul. And so they seem to follow through there in verse 32. They were of one heart and mind. That's not the first time that we have spotted this sense of unity. We talked last week about them being united in prayer. We can go back to the second chapter where they were all, the first chapter where they were all in one accord in one place. Uh, that's, uh, it's not unusual that there seems to be this unifying force that pulls them together despite their diversity you're all different people some of you believe that others here are really different but that's another issue uh but you're all different you know you didn't you didn't have the same outfits on you, your hairstyle is different if you have hair you know it's all kinds of things that way but you, you, there's a diversity and yet there can be something that pulls us together draws us together knits us together and it's, a, it's the person of the Holy Spirit of God, the person of Christ, resident in, in the body of Christ. There, it, 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 this is a picture of the extent of their spontaneous commitment to one another. You can't legislate this stuff. They develop a mechanism to try to relate, relate to needs, and that's just a, a way of dealing with it. But the motivator was that they were just concerned and had member care for one another. It cannot come from a command that says you've got to do this, uh, but it's reflected on an attitude, and that attitude Luke commands as evidence of their identification with one another. In that selfless church, there are two qualities or two characteristics of observations about that. First is this people were free from the love of things, and, and being able to get to that point was in our day, may be a greater challenge maybe than then, but I'm, I'm not positive about that. But, but I know we're just very concerned about stuff. We got stuff. You got to build a bigger barn to keep your stuff. And, 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 and uh, I went, went, went out last night and had to get something at the grocery store, not Target. It was nearby, so I just got some, some fruit there. And I was, I was amazed a number of people are just roaming around and they just they're, they're grabbing stuff off shelves and you're pulling and this and that. And, and it seemed like they were just like wanting to get a lot of stuff. And uh, we seem to be consumed with stuff. Here the language is they were free from the love of things. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. Now, at the very end of the message, I'm going to give a little caveat, a little little balancer piece, because this kind of thing operating in any given church where there's this selfless attitude and people are free from the love of things is always a target for the enemy, 
for its misuse or abuse. It can, it can develop into uh, something that is unhealthy as opposed to something that is spontaneous and a very easy response. The people were free from the love of things. Also, the people were firm in their love for people. And you got to get that. Uh, see, yeah, you got to get that contrast there right. See, we we have we we love things and use people instead of loving people and using things. There's a world of difference between those two. And if the heart of Christ is dwelling in us, there is that. The, the good balance or the good emphasis in terms of that selflessness. He came across a quote by John Piper, and he puts it this way. He says, two of the effects, I got it on there. Two of the effects of believing in Jesus are that the heart is loosened in relationship to things, very similar to free from, uh, free from things, and it's tightened in its relationship to people. So there's a, there's, a, there's a freedom and there's a firmness, to use the language of that selflessness uh, uh, that's descriptive of the people in that body of Christ in uh, verse 32. A couple statements, let me just make them. When you become united to Jesus by faith, you become united to people by love. One more time. When you become united to Jesus by faith, you become united to people by love. He puts you in relationship to people that aren't your biological brothers and sisters, but suddenly now have become brothers and sisters in Christ. And sometimes there is a love that extends beyond the, 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 the boundaries of normal relationship to to a closeness. Sometimes you may be descriptive of the people who are closer with people here than you may be with your own family because this has become, in one sense, like a, an extended family or, for some, maybe their only family, meaningful family, where they can come and find a safe place where there's not uh, somebody there to chop your head off every time you stick your head out of your turtle shell and they come after you. Um, so that there's that union uh, to Jesus by faith that results in united uh, to people by love. Faith in Christ creates a bond of love to people and cuts the bond of love to things. One more piece, one more time. Faith in Christ creates a bond of love to people and cuts the bond of love to things. I, I don't know what it is about us, and it, it may be American consumerism. I don't know. We seem like we're never really satisfied. Someone asked uh, one of the Rockefellers early on, pick the richest one you can figure, go back to, and it was probably John D. But anyway, so uh, and asked him the question, how much money is enough? And his response was, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. There's something inside of us that wants to have just a little bit more. You, you maybe you work and you're 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 building a a, a a fund for retirement. If you are good for you, I think that's important to work toward. 
in, uh, call it a 401k, a 403b, an IRA, whatever you want to call the instrument kind of thing. But you're looking to put some money in there for a day when the income stream is going to change for you. And you need to have some kind of income stream or else you're going to be by a dried up brook somewhere and wondering, well, let's see, how did I get here? So uh, planning is good. That's appropriate at that point. But sometimes when we get so focused on those things that we view that more important than the people we have, you can amass a pile of pennies or dollars or nickels or quarters or whatever it may be. You can amass a pile of money but have little connection with people in love and you become poor people-wise. You may be rich monetarily, but you may be poor people-wise. And the important thing, I think, in the process, of course, is as the verse talks about their selflessness, um, God gives to us the resources to, to manage, and then we trust him, uh, continuing dependence upon him, moving uh, along the way as we go. And that's the purpose of the gifts that God gives to us. They're used to, they're, they're intended to be used to meet human need, not satisfy human greed. There's a turn of phrase again. It, they're used to meet human need, not satisfy human greed. We'll look further in just a moment that the observation is in verse, uh, verse 34, there was no needy person among them. It's just interesting that all the needs were being met. It wasn't an issue of greed. It was a matter of need being met. I, I remember... Oh, I guess I was a young person, and I had somebody tell me, well, this is a good verse that talks about Christian communism. And I thought, well, I don't know. I guess that's, you know. And it's interesting in the, in the, in the Karl Marx material, he actually quotes from two portions of Scripture that, that talk about from each according to his ability to each according to his need. Now, two verses of Scripture he pulls to, to represent but I would have to say uh, this is not Christian communism. Let me, let me draw the difference there. Communism says what's mine is yours. I'll take it. Okay, what's mine is yours. I'll take it. The picture here is uh, better used. I'll, I'll use another Greek word that describes the people uh, in the community. It's called koinonia. It's just... Uh, it talks about association or fellowship. So that's a good Greek word. But koinonia takes a little different approach. It says, what is mine is yours. I'll share it. So it's not a matter of taking. It's a matter of sharing. And that's all very much at the heart of this selfless body of Christ. And that's a good quality. That's at the heart and soul of this church in Acts chapter 4. We have to determine whether it's going to be at the heart and soul of City Light Church. How do we view the things and the people? Are we free from the love of things? Are we firm in our love for people? That's one of the qualities of this church. The second quality is, is, uh, is this one. And uh, I can't remember where we, we put the picture with the, the big big auditorium filled with people. You know, kind of, it's, it's around somewhere. We'll, we'll probably run across it if I did. See, I 
don't remember always what I put up there, you know. And when I, when I work out, I get it, and then I turn it over to my lovely wife, and she just does her magic and she makes things come in and go out and zoom and all that stuff, you know. Um, so I, I remember that there was a real neat picture in there somewhere, but we'll find it. So, so I'm not, and I'm not looking at it. Oh, here we Okay, there we go. It was a lead, lead title. You, th you think, man, I would like to be in a church that's big, big, you know, different than 50 people, 40 people, 20 people, whatever. This is, this is a whole herd of people. And if you remove the heart and soul church slide there and take it out of the way, you'll have a picture of, take a guess, Joel Osteen. Okay. So, so there you are, just in the for what it's worth category. So I don't remember where we stole the slide from, but it must have been on that somewhere. If it was on the internet, it's free, uh, usually. So anyway, so I swipe it. Anyway, this was a this was a church, the second piece in verse 33. It was a church that was great. And I I love I love I love this part. This gets gets my juices going. This was a mega church. May not have been that picture of that big auditorium with 12,000 people or however many thousand people you fit in that, that puppy. But, but here, this was a mega church. And it was mega, uh, not MAGA. This is not M-A-G-A. This is M-E-G-A. Okay? It's, we might want to make America great again, but I want to deal with mega church here at that point. And it uses that word. It says, uh, verse 33, um, with great power. The word great is mega, mega power. And there was great grace, mega grace. We'll, we'll come to that in just a moment. But the greatness was evident in two areas. The first one, it had great power. With great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. They simply didn't have any more sense than to share what they had seen and heard that had so transformed their, their lives that they simply wanted to tell somebody else about it. Someone described evangelism. We talked about the role of evangelist as being one of the pastoral preferences. That was whatever, number three or whatever it was. But uh, someone described evangelism as one beggar telling another beggar where to get food. That's all it is. That's all it's sharing. What we discovered about the person of Jesus, one person telling another person, where to get food. They had great power. With great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. You don't see it in the English translation, but it's in a Greek verb tense that we call imperfect. Uh, it doesn't mean it's less than perfect. It means that's just a tense. But it simply is talking about the kind of action. So it's, it, it's, a, it's, a continue, it's a repeated action again and again and again. So they're giving testimony to the power of the Lord Jesus Christ in their lives again and again and again. Seems like that's all they, they gossiped the gospel, one person put it. So they simply shared what they heard, what they knew, what they experienced. If you remember, remember back when we started this study in the book of Acts, we came across chapter one and verse eight, and that was kind of like a key verse for the for the whole rollout of the chapter. You'll receive power. There's mega power again. We'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. It will be my witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, outermost parts of the earth. It just kind of rolls out the, the, the scope of Acts, the book of Acts. So it, it's, a, it's a reminder there of Acts 1-8 that's being lived out. There was great power. 
The power comes from the person of the Holy Spirit indwelling each one. You, me, as we share what we have discovered about this life in Jesus Christ, unafraid, unashamed. We talked about the courage of the disciples last week, but they simply shared what they knew. It had great power and it had great grace as well. I know when we hear the word grace, we think of, okay, that's, that's a religious word. Um, and someone does the acronym uh, God's Riches at Christ's Expense, and we develop that as a theological formula or definition for what grace is. I'm not so much focusing in on that piece as much as it is the way that these people live. They are graceful people. They are grace-filled people. And great grace was upon them all. I think of the description of the Lord Jesus when in, in Gospel of John it says, uh, we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Yeah. So Jesus is grace-filled, and certainly that helps in terms of us being able to be grace-filled people. If someone were to use a word to describe you, would they describe you as a gracious person? Talk to me for a minute. Talk to me for a minute here. Okay, so come on. Eyes to the front. Okay. Uh, okay. So when you think of a graceful person, what words come to your mind? Give me some other words for graceful. Huh? Humble, humility is a part. Huh? What? Polite. Polite. Okay, I'm sorry. One of these days, I'm going to start to wear my hearing aid again. I just said, no, but you just got to speak up. That's all. It helps. Okay. Polite, uh, humble, generous. generous. Okay. Graceful. Uh, you're, you're, you're around. Uh, there's, a, there's a lady that I know. Uh, she was uh, in our church in New Cumberland. She and her husband, John, run, uh, retired to the West Coast. They're out in uh, Prosser, Washington. They run an alpaca farm in their retirement. Um, Sage Bluff Alpaca Farm. And yesterday was a big, it was a national alpaca farm day across the country. And so, they, and, and Jennifer was interviewed on television. I happened to, happen to catch that. And uh, not, I don't get local television from Prosser, Washington, but, but I caught the internet version or the, the, the posting. And uh, Jennifer is one of the most gracious people I know. She measures, measures her words well. She, she, she doesn't, it won't find anything critical, harsh, edgy, double entendre stuff. You won't find that stuff out of her. But she just speaks very gracefully. She's, and, and she moves that way. It's like, well, I, I wouldn't, I can't. <laughs> you know, it's not like that. You know, it's okay. But it's full of grace. She's, there's a gracefulness about, about her. Um, and, and, and it's, it's a function of the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ in you and in me so that we are gracious. It's interesting how uh, the scriptures talk about, let, let, as you speak, let, let your speech minister grace to the hearer. Minister grace to the hearer. So, so you know, you, you take an Old Testament verse in, in the Proverbs and it says, Lord, set a watch about my lips so that I might minister grace. So before you 
blow off or blow up or, or, or hammer on somebody, say, Lord, may my words be gracious. One person put it this way, Lord, may the words of my mouth be sweet because one day I may have to eat them. Okay? Filled with grace. This people were filled with grace. And it's interesting that you've got the two, the two mega pieces here, power and grace. What a great verse that is. And it sets these two words, power and grace. Did we just, okay, kind of like Ken's, uh, took to life. Uh, the apostles living in between power and grace, saying my life is an open book. Look at it. What you see is what you get. This is all about Jesus and, and these two supernatural bookends that are there for our benefit. The, the church was a selfless church, and it was a great church. We, we, we sometimes don't understand what the greatness of a church is about. It, it in many cases, doesn't have to be a function of size, gratefully doesn't have to be that that size issue because you know even if you know I have no idea what the future of city light would be I, I have prayers that that God would just move among you and he would add to the church and grow the church and become an impacting uh, presence in a community for the greater glory of God I don't know if that's where, where it's all going to roll out I would hope and pray to that end but you know even even if this even if this was as good as it gets, I don't know. But even if this was as good as it gets, at the very least you have a house church here. At very least you have a community of people who can walk together, talk together, live together in relationship and be free to serve and love people and free from things, firm toward people. Finally, it was a church that was responsive, verses 34 through 37. Two things. One, they were responsive to the need. Uh, there was the description in verse 34 says there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of what was sold, laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Notice, not as any had greed. Big difference. Big difference. What are the basic needs? Well, we talk about food, shelter, clothing. Those kinds of things. Uh, those are basic necessities. The scriptures address that issue. You know, uh, I'll, I'll get to that in just a moment. Uh, but there was no needy person. That doesn't mean that there weren't people that had need. It meant that there were people whose needs were being met. So they were no longer needy. Uh, through the generosity of the people of God, they held loosely onto the things that they had. Now, there's a caveat. I told you that it's coming. I'm, I'm going to get there, you know, because we've got to balance this thing. Because if, if we start just pulling out money and throwing it away, you know, say, here, oh, you need, you need this, you need this. Eventually, we may have a bunch of people sitting in the ditch saying, I wonder who's going to provide now. Because we're not, you know, we don't have printing presses in our basement. I don't, do you have a printing press in your basement? No, okay. I don't, you know, we're not, not cranking out $100 bills or $50 bills or whatever, you know, just to, because because we want, we may, you may have a heart that that's big 
and you want to share with other people, but you may lack the resource to do that, but you do what you can, and you learn to live with, with an open hand, not a closed fist. That's that firmness and freedom uh, juxtaposition that we live with. There's a wonderful verse in the book of Proverbs, and I only wrote down part of it, and uh, um, uh, it, I tell you, I don't do this very often, but I'm going to take a detour. Uh, Proverbs chapter 30, verse 8. Maybe I can find it real quickly. I think I can. Okay. Proverbs 30, verse 8 says this. Uh, Keep falsehood and lies far from me. I love this part. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, Who is the Lord? Or... I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. Proverbs 30, verses 8 and 9. That's a wonderful portion of Scripture that puts the balance in things in terms of how we approach the material stuff that God entrusts to us. Not everybody makes the same. I mean, some people, you know, both a husband and wife are employed. If you have chosen... Uh, to, to not have your wife working outside the house or the husband is not working outside the house. I give equal time in terms of the models these days. But the point is that not everybody is making the same dollar amount up here. And so some will have more pennies to work with than others. But we are all managers of what God has entrusted to us. Whatever we choose to live, live by, by our convictions or values, we go by that point. And he entrusts us to be managers, stewards of what he gives to us. So if you make... $50,000 a year and you choose to tithe to the body of Christ or to the church, then you give X number percentage, 10%. If you're moving to that point, most people aren't. But anyway, be that as it may, you move to that point. If you make $100,000 and you tithe, you still give the same percentage. It just, it, it just all it just varies in terms of the pile of pennies you're working with. But the point is simply this. How are you handling the resources that God has given to you? They were responsive to the need. The Bible paints for us a contrast between those who are poor yet rich in Christ and those who are rich yet without God. There's an interesting contrast the Bible portrays at that point. These people were responsive to the need. And they did it not because they came up with a church bylaw that said, or it wasn't in the governing documents, unless it was simply in the document of the heart of God, that prompted the people to do what they did. But it says that, that as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them, brought them, and proceeds of what the sold laid it at the apostles' feet. And then that was a resource. It wasn't commanded. It didn't mean they had to do it. It was all voluntary. It's a wonderful thing about this body of Christ in terms of us being responsive. So look, not look around, but live with an eye toward others. What do you see? What, 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 are, what are areas where you might be able to respond to help re address the particular need of the body of Christ? They were responsive to the need. They were also responsive to the Lord. And this, I was just going to go for a moment to the, the, the character, the character that's described here. And his name is, we call him Barnabas, as his Greek name, uh, Joseph or Joses, depending upon your translation of the, of the verse in verse 36. He was a Levite from Cyprus. Interesting, the Levites were the one tribe that weren't supposed to have stuff. 
They they were they were they they weren't to be possessors of things. Uh, God was going to take care of them, and the, the community of faith took care of them, so they didn't have to worry about lands and all the properties and all kind of stuff. That was that was part of. Now it's interesting that apparently Joseph didn't get the memo because he had some stuff. Okay, so but be that as it may, he held onto that stuff loosely, and when God prompted him to do something about that, to respond to the need, it made all the difference. So the scriptures say he sold the field that belonged to him, brought the money, laid it at the apostles' feet. It's not the first time that that phrase is used. I think it's intended that there's nothing magical about the apostles' feet. You know, they, they, their, their sandals go on one shoe at a time or whatever it may be. There's nothing magical about it. And, and it's, it's probably more a figure of speech. It just kind of brought it to the community of the leadership to be able to be administered. Later on in Acts chapter 6, we're going to find out that the job got so big that they had to pass the baton of administration off to others. And so they chose deacons to, to deke and care for things, you know, and, and, and care for the needs of widows and others that might be in point of need. But at this point in time, in the community of faith, they're, 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 they're just bringing it to the apostles to, 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 to roll that stuff out from that point. The scriptures tell us in 1 John that if anyone has material possessions, sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with action and in truth. 1 John 3, 17 and 18. And that's a motto by which or the model by which we need to live. You've got to be aware of the needs of people in the body of Christ you're in. You've got to be sensitive to that need. I can't legislate that. Nobody's going to be able to. But if we if we are honest before God and say, Father, I want to be a manager of what you've entrusted to me. Help me to see the need. You won't be able to do it all by yourself. You probably won't. Unless you're a Rockefeller and you inherited a whole bunch of pennies along the way that you can use to help resource other people and bless other people and help other people get into ventures and enterprises or and, and care for needs or set whatever whatever you do to address the needs. You, you can't do it all by yourself. But if each one does what they are prompted to do by the Spirit of God, then I believe all the needs are going to be met. So 1 John 3 is an important person. Here, Barnabas was not only generous with his goods, but also with his encouragement. I love that descriptor. Um, uh, one of the first messages I remember preaching, I think I, I might have even preached it when I went to the first church as a solo pastor. I think I preached on it uh, as, a, as a candidating sermon. I'm, I'm positive I did. This is I'm not making this up. I remember this. And it was, it was on the character of Barnabas because I identified with him so much. I, and Barnabas was described as the son of consolation, F. King James Version, son of encouragement. He was an encourager. He was in your corner. He was for you, not against you. And Barnabas was very much modeled out that as he lived. And oh, today in the church, not just city like church, not just alliance churches, the church is the bride and body of Christ. We need a bunch of Barnabases. Uh, do you remember back to the song, Home, Home on the Range? 
where the deer and the antelope play, where seldom is heard a discouraging word, and the skies are not cloudy all day. I'm wondering if the church is missing some of that home on the range stuff, where they're, they're having more discouraging words than encouraging words. And I think we've got to be cautious at that point. So God prompts the hearts of the people, the body of Christ there, to respond to the need. Martin Luther, uh, this was one of the guys that you could be in Eritrea and worship in the Lutheran church. Did you pick that up? Lutherans were there. So let's track it back to Martin Luther. He put, he put it this way. He said, he said, he astutely observes there are three conversions necessary. Conversion of the heart, conversion of the mind, conversion of the purse. Heart, mind, and purse. And I don't know what the theological, I suspect, I suspect that's probably all that comes under the conversion has to be owned and uh, understood in terms of management of resources for God. But uh, in this particular picture of the body of Christ here, there are a couple things that I would note to them. One is that they had an intense sense of responsibility for each other. Responsibility for each other. Do you remember? Uh, do you remember the movie Spider-Man with Tobey Maguire in it? You know, and he's he's in the car, and Uncle Ben, his I think it was Ben, was talking to him in the semis, and you have this one great line. It happened to be on last night, and uh, we were among other things we were flittering around on, and uh, I said to Barb, I said. Watch, here comes the good line. Here comes the good line. And the good line is, with great power comes great responsibility. I want to tell you, remember that this is a mega power church? Okay, this is a, they were great power, great power. But I want to, I want to say that's equally true with the responsibility that we have. And power is not our own, but we have great responsibility. And we have the opportunity to be managers and caring for each other. The second thing is this awoke in them a real desire to share all they had. And we have to note above all that the sharing was not a result of legislation. It was utterly spontaneous. It's not when the law compels us to share, but when the heart moves us to share that society is really Christian. That's a quote from William Barclay, a Bible commentator generation past. Now, I, I say all of this, and I'm going to give you the caveat in two minutes. So hold on to your hat. Uh, so there's a scriptural caveat because it's interesting. You have this account at the ends of chapter 4, and then you start chapter 5, and you've got these, these characters, Ananias and Sapphira. And in, in, uh, uh, Oliver Green, was it Oliver Green? No, who's the, through the Bible? I think Oliver Green. Anyway, he, whatever the commentator was, says, makes this observation. He said that this particular model may have been very difficult to become typical because of the carnality of the church and, and the, the chance, the likelihood that Satan gets in there and tries to twist it. You have one guy... Son of encouragement, who's prompted by the Spirit of God to do something, brings it to the apostles' feet. You have Ananias and Sapphira, 
who get a little bit things twisted out of shape. And so suddenly the body of Christ experience, well, that would have been a Sunday to go to church. That would have been a Sunday to go to church, but I get ahead of myself. You'll have to get that maybe next week or the week after, depending on what I do for the baptism service for next Sunday. But the point is that, that uh, uh, they were not truthful and it cost them their lives. Now that would probably put the fear of God into any congregation, you know, just be careful what you say. Uh, uh, okay, so anyway, so uh, uh, the caveat. Here's the caveat. Got to keep it in balance. There are portions of the scripture. I don't remember if I put the record. Oh yeah, good. So you take your note, dig it, dig it out at home. On uh, the passages in First Timothy five and chapter six and Second Thessalonians chapter three, take a look at those kinds. But the summation of it is simply put this way: Paul found it necessary to teach regarding who was. In, would should be helped, and how they should be helped, and so his directions come come essentially this in just a nutshell, real quick. First is that the church must discern who the truly needy are. First Timothy five three, and if and then beyond that, if one can work to support himself, he's not truly needy, and must provide for his own needs. Five uh, eight. 1 Timothy 5, 8, 1 Thessalonians 4. Then if a fam if family can support the needy person, the church should not support them. If the family can support the person, the church doesn't, doesn't need to support them. So it's, it pushes it back to family. Those who, who are supported by the church, 1 Timothy 5, 5, must make some return to the church body. And I'm not talking about giving money back, but but finding some way to contribute to the body of Christ. We, I guess all of my, all of my lifelong in ministry uh, have run into people who are simply spiritual panhandlers. They're just freeloaders at times. And, and it doesn't mean that just because when you have a legitimate need that you should be ignored, but it means that some people just make it a good business. It's like, oh, this is stereotype, and I'm now cutting into Something long. It's like it's like the guy or the gal that's standing there with that cardboard sign that they just conveniently open up and it says everything, you know. It says uh, have money or have have uh, have no money will work for food or whatever, you know. And I don't want to stereotype that kind of because there may be people legitimately in need, but I would suspect that if those people spend as much time in church and and got some things ordered around in their life that would enable them to be more responsible, maybe they wouldn't be standing out there in the corner. That's, that, that, that's oh, that's just a ledge. I, I, I don't want to leave it out there, but, but I've got to come back. So those who are supported by the church must make some return. In other words, pouring back in, giving back in, building up into the body of Christ. And it's right for the church to examine the moral conduct before giving support, 1 Timothy 5, verse 9 to 13. And I realize that this 1 Timothy passage especially is dealing with widows and determining who are legitimate widows. Widows in need is the language of the scripture. Uh, so there's a call to how are they living? How are they living? And you can, you can, you'll have to dig that out. This uh, one final piece is that the support of the church should be for the most basic necessities of living. It's not so you can have a new BMW. It's not so you can have a bigger house. 
it's it, it's it's that the basic needs are are met, and I think that's where the body of Christ comes together. So, so here we are, City Light Church. What kind of church do you want to be? Do you want to be measured by ABCs? And I put uh, uh, there we are, attendance, budget, cash, ABCs. That's how we sometimes measure the church. How big is it? How big is their budget? What's their bottom line look like? Do you want to be measured by that? Or is there another metric more akin, more akin to the selfless, responsive, great church we find here in Acts 4? And I would simply say the choice is yours today. It all comes back to you and to me. My prayer is it will allow God's spirit to make us a people of one heart and soul today to impact Wilkes-Barre for Jesus. That's my prayer. Let's pause together for prayer. I've gone a couple minutes over. Uh, your, your response is, I choose to forgive Pastor Davis for, okay, because what has been shared is at the heart of what a church is to be about. So, if, if, if this was in, if this was being done in a previous ministry, I would have some drill down application questions for you to take home and or to small groups to bore into this a bit more and say, this is what it means for us. Uh, that's not quite where I'm at, but, but I would say you got to chew on this and then say, Lord, how am I modeling this? in my heart and soul for the body of Christ at City Light Church. And when God prompts your heart to do something and it's a God thing, just listen to him. Leave the results to him. No pressure. No pressure. So let's pause for prayer. Now, Father, you have allowed this group of people to be here this day for this message. And some may be just doing this thing very naturally. It may just be part of their values, be part of the way they live. And, and some maybe just aren't quite there. Maybe their firm hold on things is different than their firm hold on people. And so all I ask, Father, is that you would be the searcher of hearts as you do so very well and help us to live authentically with heart and soul as the body of Christ. Trust you for the results. Trust you for the opportunities to practice what we preach. And we will trust you for each need that exists among the community of faith at City Light Church. And we will thank you for what you'll do. In the strong name of Christ, we pray. Amen.